Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. My topic today touches on the subject of great fear and trembling among American students. I remember it well. I remember before I crossed over to what, to what I then considered to be the dark side that is teaching. I remember when I was a student, I remember the things that brought me dread. Things like assigned reading, pop quizzes, papers due, and final exams. But one thing brought the incessant shivers of December's breath. It's grammar. Oh, how we dreaded the thought of paragraphs, clauses, predicates, objects, nouns, verbs, tenses, and mood, of participles, gerunds, and the infinitive that must not be split. Yeah, this is the very thing. This is the very thing is the essence of communication interpretation. Your brain right now is processing words and clauses, sentences and paragraphs to understand meaning. You are navigating a complex system of grammar to get to meeting. And I would also suggest that you're also navigating a deep southern accent. You are brilliant. So yes, that's right. Communication is dependent on understanding grammar as the author intended it. The student of that communication event, that is the scriptures, must be able to navigate the grammar to understand what he or she is reading. Now, this is not primarily referring to your English Bibles. I'm referring to the original languages. The grammar is not in isolation. Every communication event exists because of propositional truth in the mind of the author. Uh, in, in our case, in both the biblical writer and in God, our only access to this propositional truth that we're going to loosely call theology is the text itself. However, any given text also appears in the context of other texts, also expressing propositional truth. We might refer to this as canon of Scripture. These other propositional truths should have an influence on the text under investigation. But what are the hermeneutical controls? This, then, is the specific topic that I have chosen today, the proper relationship between theology and grammar. We shall examine this problem through a meditation of Romans 5.12. There the Scripture says... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now there is no modern consensus on the meaning of the, mess of the passage. This is also true of evangelicals who have a more narrow field of interpretation. For our purposes, we'll concentrate on a tradition of interpretation that is adopted by a number of modern theologians. And while they disagree on the details... Certain theological convictions that lie outside the text drive the interpretation of it. And even though different interpreters wind up at different destinations. As typically stated, sin entered the world through Adam and death enters the world 
through sin because, and underline that word, because all sinned. So then the actual transmission of sin is interpreted along the lines of either a corrupt nature physically transmitted, that is the realist position or a biological position, or by being present in Adam or that Adam was our representative head and his sin is imputed to all his descendants, often referred to as federal headship. In other words, individual sin is not being noted here, but corporate sin found in solidarity with Adam. For many, if not most, this includes inherited guilt and condemnation. What has led to this state of the question is a complicated trip through not only uh, church history, but also grammar. We, we neither have the time nor the inclination to completely go through that romp through church history. We will touch on it. What is more important than the reception history of the passage is what did Paul mean? And to this, I think that we can all agree. Now, before you dive for the door, and uh, as we discuss grammar and the relationship between theology and grammar, let me address a couple of other questions here for us. So why is this important? Let me introduce to you a grieving mother. She has lost a child in infancy. Her grief is overpowering. The house was once a place of hope and expectancy, but now it's empty. And the walls echo with its emptiness in the power of her loss. She's come to your office and she wants to know what happens to babies who die before they can receive the gospel. She can't find scripture that directly speaks on the topic. What happened to the soul of her baby? Is that child in heaven or in hell? She doesn't need a vague reference to the age of accountability. She needs to hear from God. What are you gonna tell her? Let me introduce you another guy. This is the smug atheist. Now, not all atheists are smug. I want you to know that. This one is. You met this guy in college. He rejects your God because he believes that your version of God is unjust. God judges human beings for something they had no choice. If they're born sinful and separated from God, why would God condemn them on this basis? It all seems so unfair. He then objects that there is, if there's such a God, we should rebel against him. His is a question of the culpability for sin. How are you gonna answer him? And then finally, the tortured soul. You met this guy in the coffee shop. After he realized you're a Christian, for some reason he opens up to you. He too was raised a Christian. He believes in God, but he has powerful attractions that the scriptures call sin, and in fact, very sinful. He has surrounded himself with those who tell him that it's okay to act on these attractions because he was born with them. But honestly, he feels helpless. He feels the grace of God is available for everyone but him. It rushes past him like rapids around a large boulder. Because of his attractions, he's doomed to hell. He's heard nothing but condemnation from other Christians and he is filled with confusion and anger and shame. What do you tell him? When we balance the tension between grammar and theology in Romans 5.12, we're going to be able to give concrete answers to these people that God loves. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, 
for this hour, for this time, we ask you, God, that your spirit have control, that you would use it in a mighty way. We pray these things, trusting you in Jesus' name. Amen. My first point for us today is that theology is revealed by the grammar. Theology cannot go where the grammar does not lead. So our first point in the test case in the nature of death in Romans 5.12, does it refer to physical death or does it refer to the sentence of death? It is my contention that the grammar points to the last one, that death at Romans 5.12 is specifically spiritual death and not physical death. So then, let's take a look at this. The uh, first thing we want to look at is this concept of sin introduced in a text by Hay Harmartia. And as we look at the grammar, it's quite often overlooked in the commentary literature, is that this introduction of the nouns sin and then death, hothanatos, uh, both of these occur with the article. Normally, when a noun is introduced in a context, it's introduced anarthrously, that is, without an article. This is the normal way that a topic is introduced in Greek. Then, subsequent appearances of that noun have the article that, in effect, points back to the previous reference of the noun. We call that the article of previous reference. Now, here's what's interesting. At Romans 5.12, that doesn't happen. This new noun, Heharmatia, is introduced with the article. And in fact, both Heharmatia and Hathanatos are introduced with the article. The first is sin. It enters the world through one man. And so then we ought to ask the question, what's the use of the article? Why does it appear with the article? Now, instead of going through all the options and eliminating them one by one and being here till 5.30 this afternoon, I'm going to tell you my humble but accurate opinion as to what this is. It is the article that's used with abstract nouns, okay? The article that's used with abstract nouns, so he's not talking discrete, specific sin. He's talking about the principle of sin. The theology in its context helps us with this. So for example, Romans 7, 17. So now lo no longer I am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. See that embodied sin? And 7, 21 through 24, I find then a principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. And it cries out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin? I believe then that the reference here is to embodied sin. Now there's the next thing we would look at is death. Death, hothanatos. The next phrase is, and death through sin. It introduces the next ontological reality for human beings. There's no explicit verb here, but we should understand the same as the previous clause. That is, entered, aselfen. Both nouns, sin and death, occur with the article. But different uses of the article, and I'm talking about this specific clause. Sin, teshamartias, is likely the article of previous reference. So he's introduced sin, and now he's referring back to that sin. But not so with death. 
death is introduced with the article as well. Now, many commentators take the reference to mean physical death. So for example, James D.G. Dunn says this, as in the broader sweep of Jewish thought also, there's no suggestion of a distinction between spiritual and physical death. Human weakness, the corruptibility of the flesh and death are all of a piece that they are characterized the whole sweep of creaturely alienation from the creator. Well, this is a true statement in that these are all part and parcel of what it is to be human. It is not true that Paul consistently lumps these all together in every expression, nor, would he, nor that he could not refer to individual components of fallen human existence. So let's take a look at the grammar and the use of the article. Before we understand this in terms of discrete human death, that is that event that awaits all of us if the Lord tarries, we should investigate the closer uh, investigate closer the grammar of the clause. Note that the article appears with the word death, hothanatos, and here again, it is best to understand it as a use of the article with an abstract noun. Not a discrete event, but an abstract noun. So then I believe as we look at this, the first thought we ought to investigate is whether or not this is referring to spiritual death in the context. And what we see, beloved, is interesting. What we see is a chain of reference all the way through uh, verse 21. So the second clause in verse 12 says, and death hathanatos spread to all men because all sinned. Notice the article that's here as well, pointing back to the previous instance of death, okay? And then at 14, yet death, hathanatos, notice the use of the article, reigned from Adam to Moses. Again, article of previous reference. Whatever the death is we're referring to is back to 512. And then at 517, for if because of one man's trespass, death, and again, notice, hothanatos, reigned through that man. Again, article of previous reference. Do you see the chain? And the chain all running back to that death introduced in chapter, 12, uh, chapter 5, verse 12. And then finally, here's what's interesting, so that as sin reigned in death, and look how this is expressed, in to thanato. That little word toe, the one in the middle, is the article. And it again is the article of previous reference. Now here it's unusual. It's unusual to have an article in a prepositional phrase in Greek. It's not uncommon, but it is a little unusual. It's put here for a reason. He's referring backwards to the previous mentioned death. So that as sin reigned in death, we ought to think about that for just a moment as well. Not death reigning as the previous usage, but sin reigns in death, that is in the sphere of death. If he had meant the discrete event of death, why wouldn't he say sin reigned unto death, but in an environment of death is what he describes. I don't believe the reference is the physical death. Furthermore, the contrast to obtaining eternal life in this verse, a present possession, again, makes it unlikely. 
So here it's a state that is being described. Sin reigns among those who are spiritually dead. And so now we turn to some propositional content to support our grammatical observations, that is theology. In the lexical content, Paul's usage elsewhere may help. He speaks of death in multiple but connected senses. He uses the word thanatos to mean to physical death at place. I have a long list of verses I'll spare you. But Paul also employs the word to refer to what we call spiritual death, the state of sin and alienation from God. And sometimes he seems to be meaning both, okay? Um, When there is a distinction, these can be clearly seen at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one of fragrance from death to death from spiritual death to physical death or eschatological death and other fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things. We could go broader. Let's take a look at the context in Genesis. Do we remember what Adam is told in Genesis? And by the way, do we think Paul has Adam on his mind when he says through one man? You go back to Genesis and we see something interesting. He says, for in that day you eat, you shall surely die. And yet he While both Adam and Eve sinned that day, neither died physically. They are alienated and separated from God and removed from the garden lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever. Sin escalates exponentially in the following chapters. Adam's descendants slip further and further away from God. More than once the evaluation of the human heart is that it is fully evil. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, as 8.21 states. Paul's statements in chapter 5 that sin and death entered through Adam and that Adam to Moses both reigned apart from the law is firmly based on the observation of death in the book of Genesis. We should take a look also at the surrounding context as well. So if Paul is referring to spiritual death as the state of human beings apart from Christ, The appeals to righteous living that occur in chapter 6 make a great deal of sense. For the appeals are in the realm of present human living and not the threat of death. So throughout the section of Romans, there is a transfer underway from being in Adam to being in Christ. He says this at 1 Corinthians 15, 22, very explicitly, For as Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Believers then, by virtue of union with Christ, have buried the old man with him. They're free from sin, verse 7. But more than merely dead to sin, they are alive to Christ at 6.11. And thus believers are no longer separated and alienated from God through sins. The appeals that follow in 6.12 through 14 are in the context of the believer being not spiritually dead but alive. Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 12, don't present your members as sin, uh, as instruments of unrighteousness. Verse 13, and instead believers may present their bodies to God as those alive from the dead because that is exactly what they are, living, rescued from those who are dead. He looks forward to redemption day as well. The injunction, as Kazmon puts it, is quote, become what you are becoming. There is this now and not yet dynamic, but we are no longer dead. And we can present 
our bodies as instruments of righteousness as those who have come alive. These clues point to death in chapter 5 as the state of spiritual death. So then the grammar then reveals the theology. It's my contention that in this case, antecedent theological convictions have obscured Paul's meaning here. So then you may think me wrong, and I may be. So here's my challenge. Prove it. Prove it by the grammar. Investigate. And don't send me an email. I get plenty of those. But I hope you see my point. The theology is revealed in the grammar. Our second point is that theology cannot create grammar or should not create grammar. It's to be founded on legitimate grammar. Now, it's not my intent to accuse any Christian theologian of intentionally creating grammar where it doesn't exist. That's the practice of the heterodox and the heretical groups promoting an agenda. However, I do believe that the final clause of Romans 5.12 has suffered from grammar being created through theological pre-commitments. And for the modern interpreter, this is not an intentional choice, but the result of some unfortunate decisions made in the production of Greek grammars and the commentary literature. The final clause reads in most evangelical versions, uh, excuse me, English versions, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So let's look at the controversy. The second clause has a firestorm attached to it. If we could divide the length of the text by the weight of the controversy, the little phrase F-ho, we'd easily win the day. It is the preposition epi, variously translated in individual context, with a rather wooden gloss of a pun. It has a masculine, neuter, dative, singular, relative pronoun of which all of you are there going, yes, of course. Strictly translated, it would read, upon whom or upon which. The pronoun would normally have some kind of reference to a previous noun, but many are translating it as an idiomatic substitute for the conjunction because. And when they do this, they shift the cause and effect relationship. The cause, instead of being previous, is now forward. The debate rages over what's the correct uses of the phrase. In the next section, I'll select from among the remaining grammatical options. But here I want to make the point that theology cannot create grammar. And if I'm correct, the translation because has come about not by good lexicography, the study of words, but by prior theological commitments. The most common view of this phrase calls on a theological proposition to justify a translation because claiming the phrase is simply an idiomatic statement equal to other causal conjunctions like hati or tiadi. Thus, the rendering of most English translations, because all sin, they're simply following the options cited by the grammars. They make a threefold argument so that Paul uses it this way, the Greek literature uses it this way, and it makes the best sense in Romans 5.12. We see this over and over again. So let's, let's examine this. Let's examine F-ho in Paul, okay? So the claims made by most scholars regarding Pauline usage is, um, is that it means because. Now, Paul does employ F-ho four times, including Romans 5.12. 
The commentary literature often cites all four as evidence of a causal conjunction and claims the case proved like, you know, they slam it shut. See, Paul uses it like this elsewhere. And I think they're wrong. Upon closer inspection, we'll see that none of the other four, three instances must be translated this way. The first is Philippians 3.12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which, the word F-O, also has laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, many modern commentators suggest the translation because here, so that it would be I lay hold of that because I also was laid hold of it of Christ Jesus. The ESV translates it this way. Several commentators, however, in many English versions suggest that the phrase is actually describing not cause, but purpose. That is a consecutive use. In my mind, it makes better sense to say that Paul presses on to lay hold of the resurrection as the completion of Christ's purposes. In many ways, then, it echoes 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ. Well, at any rate, a causal meaning here is contested in the literature. It is by no means certain. So let's go to 4.10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, F-O, but you lacked opportunity. Now, the thought here is that you revived your care for me because you cared but lacked opportunity. That, my friends, is redundant and unnecessarily so. O'Brien notes in his New International Greek New Testament commentary, this quote makes little sense, and it really doesn't. Instead, the antecedent of the relative pronoun is the word me, emu, with the meaning about whom, that is Paul. And so Paul emphasizes their care for him through conceptual repetition. And all that to be said is, why don't you listen to my translation of the text? Well, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your care for me. You indeed were caring for me, F-O, but lacked opportunity. It makes a lot better sense. Well, what about the, the last one then? It's 2 Corinthians 5, 4. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan being burdened. We, uh, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, that we would be further clothed. This one is the trump card. It is often cited as the prototypical case. Um, and translating F-ho because here does not produce a nonsense reading like some of the other proposals in Philippians. Yet it is not the only or the best understanding of the sense of the passage. And let me, let me pause right here and say, that we cannot just simply insert something that makes sense in the context and say that, aha, we have translation. I could do that with a lot of things. Student comes to me and said, Professor, I think your quiz was unjust. And I will respond, thank you for agreeing with me that you were wrong. And they were, what do you mean? Well, I'm interpreting your words and inserting things that make sense to me. They would protest, would they not? And often they do. <laughs> Simply because you can insert a word and it makes sense, does that mean that's a proper translation? 
want you to note the ESV's translation. We groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but rather that we would be clothed. And the understanding is that in repeated in most English translations today, Seyfried's uh, commentary on 2 Corinthians puts it this way. The phrase FHO, often interpreted as causal, is best understood as introducing the conditions under which the preceding statement holds. In other words, the antecedent of the relative pronoun is conceptual, which is something that's common in the literature, rather than being specific. And so in light of these matters, it's better to understand FHO here to suggest the conditions that produce the burden. So what do we say about all this? It is not, well, it it is not at all certain from these examples that it could be translated as a conjunction. And I don't know what you're thinking. Why didn't you just say that? But I had to prove it. And so now let's move forward. What about elsewhere in biblical literature? So I looked up F-ho in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the New Testament. If if F-ho is used as a causal conjunction, we would expect it perhaps to be used as a translation of a causal conjunction. We never see it that way. Instead, eight out of the 10 instances translates the Hebrew relative pronoun, I share. And uh, the other two instances, neither of those can be considered a uh, causal conjunction. So our conclusion is that nowhere translates a causal conjunction or ever has a causal meaning. It's looking bad for the thesis, isn't it? Now we turn to F.O. in classical literature, to the mounds and mounds of references uh, that are here. If F.O. were part of the lexical stock because, we would expect it to be used in Greek literature. And in fact, sometimes people claim this. The claims that F.O. meaning because is, quote, well-established in Greek literature has been strongly contested, however. Fitzmaier, in a very interesting article, suggests that um, he examines the extra-biblical literature through the database provided by the TLG, and his results are very difficult to dismiss. He says that no legitimate examples are forthcoming from antiquity. You know how hard it is to find nothing? Did you have to sift through all this mounds and mounds of evidence and to come up with nothing? And in fact, um, I have taken a look at the, two, at the hundred years surrounding Paul and have found nothing, and it creates this little sense of, well, maybe I missed something. But let me put this thought in your mind. If it is that rare, could we ever say that it's the most logical choice in Paul? But beyond that, those who have looked for it have not found it. Now, you would say, well, what about BDAG? BDAG cites, that's the, that's the hoi polloi Greek lexicon. It's cited six instances of the so-called causal use of the phrase in the third edition. He virtually repeats the second edition. In fact, what he does is he doubles down on his wrong opinion. Fitzmaier suggests that all but one of these are simply invalid. And he says this, Uh, They do not mean sense as a conjunction and have not been translated in standard translations of such text. So the experts outside of biblical studies are not translating these instances as because. 
His assessment of the thought that F.O. is a conjunction is, quote, there is almost no certain instances in Greek literature where F.O. is used as the equivalent of causal dihadi. The answer to such a charge is, well, simply produce one. They are not forthcoming. All of this corroborates an earlier work, Fitzmaier uh, cites a work by S. Lyonnais, a French person, who reports that he was unable to find the causal meaning in any of the specialized lexica for, hang on, Aristophanes, Aristotle, Demosthenes, Epictetus, Plato, Plutarch, Xenophon, or in those for the Apostolic Fathers, the Apologist, or Athanasius. His conclusions was that the, quote, alleged current use of F.O. for hati or dihati is in no way been proved. The only possible examples come 500 to 900 years after Paul, and there are only three. And one of them I, I debate, but I'm not going to go into details. In the 14th century, the grammarian Thomas Magister suggests the causal use of F.O., but only cites one dubious example that's been disproven. And close to him, the Renaissance lexicographer, lexicographer Favorinus, who died in 1537, also suggested the same meaning. But Sandy and Hedlum, in their famous Romans commentary, make the ominous comment regarding him, quote, but here he seems to be inventing his examples. So what do we say about this? Doesn't seem, it's not forthcoming. It doesn't seem to exist. Well, I mentioned church history, and we have to visit briefly the battle between Augustine and Pelagius. The, um, we land now in the fifth century in a debate that we don't have time to cover in detail, but it's, it's often said that Julian of Eclinum, who was Pelagius's most able defender and communicator that translated this word and defended his doctrine of um, salvation, his heretical doctrine of salvation, on the idea that this means because, translating it with the Latin word quia. If so, this would indicate that some fifth century readers understood the phrase as a conjunction, so we should investigate. Um, I did investigate. I took a look at the, all the references of Romans 5.12 in the anti-Pelagian writings and in the two volumes that Augustine wrote on against Julian. And um, I want you to know that, um, well, let me tell you how it works out. So as with most condemned in heresy, most of Julian's works have been lost to time. We don't have what, what he said, but we have Augustine commenting on it. And when Augustine does comment on it, here's what he says. With remark, he, he addresses Julian. He says, with remarkable abandon, madness rather, you attack. You got to love the fifth century fathers. You know, we have to be all calm. It doesn't seem to be. We had all these warrants. And he says, madness. Kind of like that. At the end of the day, you may refer to me and go, madness, but anyway. Rather, you attack that most fundamental teaching of the apostle. Through one man, sin entered the world, and through sin, death, and thus death has passed unto all men, in whom all have sinned. In vain, you offer a new interpretation, distorted and abhorrent, declaring that, and notice that what happens is a quote of Julian. Okay, so find the quotation marks. 
By these words, he meant us to understand the one in whom or in which all have sinned, as though he had said, because of which all have sinned. Julian does not suggest a translation, but an interpretation. And Augustine attacks it, not linguistically, but as a perversion of sense, an impossible act of hermeneutical gymnastics. And in fact, elsewhere, Augustine, their arguments are based on Stoic philosophy. And so elsewhere, Augustine cries out, away with this philosophy and back to the scriptures. I kind of like that. I suspect modern ears have read back into the debate that which was not there. It seems unlikely that the 5th century readers understood the use as a conjunction. Now, so the translation, and so death spread to all men because all sinned is flawed because it creates grammar where it is questionable whether it existed or highly doubtful that it was in Paul's time. Now, I'm not suggesting that theologians are over in the basement of Staley Hall creating as mad scientists grammatical interpretations so they can defend their heresy. I'm not saying that. Nothing so insidious is going on here. I'm saying that a legitimate concern has caused them to embrace an erroneous interpretation of Romans 5.12 so that in effect then theology has created grammar. We must take steps that this not happen. This leads us to a third point. Theology can help us choose between legitimate grammatical options. And as I look at the clock, we must speed up. So get on your horse and follow me. The idea that FHO is equivalent to because has led to the interpretation that all sin because of their interpretation in Adam, or all sin because they imitated Adam, or all sin because of their corrupt nature. All of these are wrong because they're based on flawed grammar that doesn't exist. So let's look at the legitimate grammatical options. So the question is, first of all, what is the use of the preposition? So BDAG lists 11 meanings for epi with a dative object. Now to spare you, again, I am not gonna go through every one of those 11, but give you the only one that could be in this context, that it is a marker of basis for state of being, action, or results. So then a translation on the basis of would be a good rendering. Okay, so hang on with that. So we pick that legitimate grammatical option. And, yeah. So then we ask the question, if it's being used as a relative pronoun, what is the antecedent of the relative pronoun? You hanging with me? Nod your head, even if you're lying. Could it be one man? That is, henosanthropy. Well, it's too far away and it crosses over a lot of turbulence. So the subordinate clauses, stuff like that. Probably not. Could it be death? And here we ought to camp out just a little bit. If um, the noun is masculine, but this one is likely far more promised, the one man. So first it's in the immediate context of the relative pronoun. If Paul had meant to reference one man, one would expect some sort of clarifying item because Thanatos is the nearest thing. 
Since we have identified death as spiritual death, identifying Thanatos as the antecedent has some great promise with the causal use of epi. So the translation would then be, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men on the basis of which all sinned. So here's the idea. Adam sins, he dies. He dies spiritually and he has embodied sin. And in this condition is passed on to every one of his descendants. The actual mechanics of the process is not stated. But in that condition, every person sins. Okay? Now, it fits with the grammar and all the text. It takes all sinned in the same way as at 323. All sinned and come short of the glory of God which are personal, individual sins. It preserves sinfulness of every human being. And coupled with our understanding of the noun sin as indwelling sin, it explains the environment in which every human being lives as a result of Adam, maintaining solidarity with Adam. Yet it does so without challenging the justice of God and magnifying the grace of God. I find this rendering to have great promise and quite a number of scholars agree. So I'm not alone in my boat. There's one other view that could be. Remember I said that a relative pronoun could have a conceptual reference, antecedent? Theodore Zahn, the German icon, conservative icon, took this view. His interpretation understood the antecedent of the relative pronoun to be the preceding clauses. So then it is both sin and death that is the reference. And this is something you can easily find in extra biblical literature. So the relative pronoun references the previous condition or state. But epi is still showing cause, and so the resulting translation is one I think we ought to adopt. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men on the basis of this condition, all sinned. Now, if we take it strictly as death, it doesn't change the meaning because death and sin are interlocked. Uh, through other structures in the text. Now let's return to apply this. Our, Our fourth point is that theology helps us understand and apply the implications of what we just said. What about the grieving mother? Transmission of sin invariably leads to the question about infant mortality. What happens to babies who die in the womb or as infants? Does God condemn those born spiritually dead and with a sin nature? cannot deny the transmission of sin and death to every human being, but there's hope in Scripture. So we ask the first question is, on what basis, I got a little, on what basis does God judge human beings? The Scriptures tell us that He judges us according to our works. So Romans 2, 6, He will render to each one according to His works. I have several more references here, but for time's sake, I'll spare you. And we'll go to the end of the book, that is the whole book, Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The implication is that God does not judge you for what you are. He doesn't judge you for having the principle of sin and being spiritually dead. You are judged according to your works. And Paul has made that case even that those without the law are law unto themselves. 
These works then are done by those who can make moral decisions. Now, I don't uh, have a lot here that I'm just not going to pull out of the dump truck on you, but let me say this. When those books are opened and Judgment Day is comprehensive, a host of vile and rebellious activity is noted. There is no way excusing sin and ignorance or anything like that, but... If you're judged according to your works, it suggests that you are judged for making moral decisions. But some cannot knowingly sin. A young infant cannot knowingly sin, and for that matter, special needs people who are in the same situation. This doesn't eradicate the problem of an inherited alienation and separation from God, but God doesn't take it lightly or superficially, or it's some sort of category that he can overlook. I like the way R.S. Norman described it. The ultimate issue regarding culpability is not the age of the individual. Rather, the issue is whether the person is able to become a disciple of Jesus Christ as described in Scripture. Can this person repent of his own sin? Is this person competent enough to trust personally in Jesus Christ to save him from his sin? Is this person able to profess his own faith in believer's baptism? Is this person capable of receiving instruction and observing all things that Christ has commanded? We know experientially and intuitively that infants are capable of are incapable of making these kinds of decisions and quite a number of adults who have no ability to make a moral decision. So on what basis are these dealt with? It's interesting, Spurgeon many, many years ago on a Sunday evening stepped out at the Metropolitan Tabernacle and he wrote a sermon on infant salvation. He ultimately said all infants are elect, who die are elected from birth. I think he's a little wrong on that. But one of the observations that he makes I think is very much correct. He says, when you look at heaven in the scriptures, it is an innumerable crowd, large. But when you look at the church and the redeemed, it's a small crowd. How do we get that innumerable crowd? Spurgeon suggests it is from those infants and those who cannot make moral choices, who have been described in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Listen to what it says. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you purchased the people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you see the basis for this? They're bought, and that's the word that's used here, by the blood of the Lamb. Theologians describe it as a prevenient grace. Now, I'm not using that in the Armenian terms in, a, in the Calvin versus Armenian debate, but in terms of a special grace given to these little ones, whereby God can receive them. This is what you tell that young mother. With confidence, your child is better off than they ever could have been on earth. What about the smug atheist? He claims that the Christian God is unjust because uh, my sin is not my fault, it's his fault. He, he gave it to me, right? That, that's what he says. We want to remind him of the previous truths that all human beings have indwelling principle of sin and are alienated and separated from God. In this environment, every human sins. But God judges us according to our works, not for who we are. He, he doesn't judge us for being spiritually dead. And in fact, a prevenient grace is applied to those who cannot be followers of Christ through no fault of their own. To these points, we would add, it's not just those who die that this early grace applies. 
Paul seems to allude to this at Romans chapter 7, verse 9, when he says, I was alive once apart from the law. Now, he's doing more than discussing original sin here, but to say I was once alive is to suggest a point in his life when he was at least safe and when he hears the law or the command and understands the moral truth, he crosses the line and dies. He, did you catch that? He crosses the line. And so then choice to sin is not solely based on our spiritual condition. Adam sinned without the virtue of indwelling sin and alienation from God. Did you ever dwell on that thought? Thus it was not necessary to have a sin nature to sin. I would suggest the reverse is also true. That we who follow after Adam have made choices not to sin in given instances. Now you're like me. You can't think of a lot of them, but there are some. Where when you were dead in sins and trespasses, you chose to do the right thing. Did you not? Really? Of course you did. Scripture describes people like this. Abimelech, king of Gerar, chooses not to sin against God and takes Sarah from Abraham in Genesis 20, 1 through 18. Pharaoh earlier made the exact same choice. So then it's possible for those with a sin nature to choose not to sin. Now I speak of the individual temptation. At the end of the day, our corruption is so deep that we willfully and and eagerly participate in sin. But his argument depends on no ability at all to choose to do the right thing. That doesn't seem to be the case. We are by nature children of wrath, deserving his judgment for willful participation and rebellion against him. And as Paul says, there is no righteous, no, not one. But we are fully culpable for our own sin. Finally, it leads us to address the tortured soul. This young man who finds his sinful desires overwhelming, and I'm being vague here for reason. It's not just uh, sexual sins, but maybe some other sinful desire, uh, uh, addictions of all different kinds of things that are overwhelming that the scriptures say are sinful and some very sinful. And there are some around him who is saying that God made you that way, so your sin is okay. So I'd identify the logic behind the thought for the, argu- for the argument God made me this way to be valid is to suggest judgment in these cases is dependent on whether or not the cause of the sin is nature or nurture. That is, it's being, being our environment. In fact, a recent commentary on Romans has claimed that since Paul had no idea, no concept of sexual orientation, his condemnation of same-sex acts should be restricted to those who do not have this orientation. It seems to be following this line of thought. We're going to see more of these kinds of interpretations as Western culture distances itself from Christianity. But like Paul's opponents in Galatia, they embrace doctrinal error to avoid persecution. That's Galatians 6.16. 6.12, excuse me. 
This logic is flawed because God doesn't judge us for who we are, but what we do. You will not be judged for the attraction itself, however sinful. You will be judged on your moral choices. So why is there a sinful attraction that has an exempt status? When I sin, I act on sinful attractions. And when I sin, I sin when I meditate long after these kinds of things. I sin when I approve these actions in others. The argument then of nature versus nurture is invalid, but more than invalid, it is irrelevant. We're all born sinners and must each repent of sin and make Jesus the Lord of our life and place our trust in what he did on the cross to cover our sin. But really, this young man, he thinks he's a monster who cannot be saved. And to him, I would say, we all have sinful desires. And the church ought to seek forgiveness when we have categorized someone else's sinful desires as irredeemable and to be outcast. And in fact, everyone with these sinful desires, we should say, we want you in our churches. We want you to hear the gospel. and We want you to turn from your sin and make Jesus the Lord of your life. And we will walk with you through this problem. Instead, we tend to throw them out. We should remember the grounds for the judgment. We're not judged for the desires, we're judged according to our works. And yes, some of these works are mental as we long after sin and and meditate on these things. And I would say that feeling shame for your deeds is appropriate. But the cure for guilt and shame is repentance and faith. Doesn't mean the attractions are immediately gone. It means that the attractions are viewed from God's point of view. It means that the heart wants righteousness more than satisfaction. It means a new journey has begun and that the transformed heart gives power to do God's will. An occasional failure doesn't mean loss of salvation. It is struggle. What I hope you hear is not that we should condemn these people who struggle in unique ways, but we should offer the hope of the gospel. Our God is in the people-changing business. Now, I have tried to put the dynamic between theology and grammar in proper perspective. Without a doubt, there is propositional truth in the mind of both God and Paul of theology, if you will. Our access to it is the medium of human language. And as Paul puts it on the page... Thus, theology is revealed by the grammar, and the theology may not create the grammar, but can help us delineate what is correct among the legitimate options. Finally, the implications and application of the text beyond a specific situation is vitally aided by theology. So knowing grammar, then, is foundational to biblical truth. All interpretation is grammatical investigation. Let me say that again. All interpretation is grammatical investigation. And at this point, I give a challenge. The challenge is not about my specific points in Romans 5.12. Again, I don't want your emails. Instead, my challenge is for you to be equipped to investigate the text, keeping in mind these principles. It's your duty to investigate whether or not a particular teaching is true. If you think me wrong, 
Prove it by a close investigation of the text. means you must have access to the grammar of the original text. Now, not everybody can be the second coming of A.T. Robertson, okay? I understand that. But we can learn the language, and we can use the tools to investigate it. To abandon the language is to jettison the foundation for truth. means you must read and think deeply from the great thinkers and theologians of the church as we apply the theology. It means you must constantly read the scriptures as as God's word, not merely a matter of intellectual curiosity. So here's what my challenge is. It's time to dive in and to encounter all the false teachings of the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. I thank you, God, for this opportunity. I ask you that you would help us as we seek to glorify you in our mind and in our witness. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.